record everything now. Uh, we'll get it uploaded uh, later this week. We're going to go away from uh, 2 Corinthians this week. I'd like for you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to preach a message to you this morning, and if you've been born of God, and you've been taught by His Holy Spirit concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, I hope that you can find yourself uh, in these words that we're going to look at and study this morning. I've entitled this message, Mercy for Dead Dogs, Mercy for for dead dogs. And we'll see that when we get through this story. This is a a very interesting story here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And the writer of this book, Samuel, what he gives us here is he gives us a historical record of probably the greatest king outside of our Lord Jesus Christ that ever existed in natural Israel. But it's a historical record of King David's dealings with one of the lineage of his enemy. And you've got to keep that in mind. Talking about an enemy is what we're talking about, or or could be an enemy. And there's no doubt that this recording reveals to us the true heart, and I want to stress this to you this morning, the true heart, the true nature, of every justified saint is seen clearly in the person of this sinner saved by God's grace who had a title, King David. We have a tendency, all of us. I know when you you look at Samson or you look at Moses or we consider Abraham, especially when we think of King David or Joshua or all the Old Testament prophets, that somehow we divorce them from what they were by nature. David was a man of like passions just like us. How do we know? God revealed to us and wrote down in his book all the errors in this man's life. Not so we can use it as an excuse to commit the same errors, the same sins, but when we do say, and I, I think about Second, First uh, John chapter two, my little children, these things write unto you that you do what? Don't sin. But if any man sin, literally, when you do sin, we have what? We have an advocate. We have a paraclete. We have a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ, righteousness. Jesus Christ who's the propitiation for our sin. He's perfect satisfaction to God's law and justice. This man, David, you think about it. He was God's chosen rightful king, yet filled with all his sinfulness. Still, he exhibited true love and true compassion to one who in reality could have been his enemy. We have to keep in mind that this man that we're going to look at this morning, this Mephibosheth, was a physical heir. He was in the lineage of King Saul. Right? Now keep that in mind. And many people, when they read it, and, and, and I, we all did it. I, I used to say it. When I, when I was in ignorance and unbelief, even though I was religious, moral, sincere, and dedicated, I was a New Testament saint. Wasn't you? 
We, we, we prided ourselves in that. We, we were New Testament believers, and we emphasized the New Testament. And though they would, they would preach to us, and I would preach sometimes out of the Old Testament, it was very limited because that applied to them. It was Israel's. Well, in reality, it was Israel's. But not physical Israel. What Israel? The Israel of God. And so everything back there, these aren't just stories written down like we, you know, I, I hated history. No, I did. I'll be honest with you. I think the only thing I hated worse than history was English. And you can tell that I hate English because I still to this day brutalize the king. But I hated history. I just, I despised it. I, I literally, when I was in college and I took world civilization history, I got to the final. And I, I, I was so low on the grade that I had, I could have made a hundred on the on the final, and I couldn't have got to a to a D. And I begged the teacher. I said, "Could you please, if I made a hundred on the test, would you give me a D where I could pass?" And she said, "No, <laughs> I'm not going to do that." And I said, "Well, I'm not going to take the test." And she said, "Why?" I said, "Because I can explain an incomplete to my daddy a whole lot easier than I can explain to my daddy an L." But I just I didn't care about history. And a lot of people, when we, when we think about this, we, we think of it just as historical record. It's, just, it's like picking up and reading about the history of the United States of America. But there's more to it than that. And I hope you don't do that. I hope when you read these Old Testament stories that by God's grace you can see beyond this as just a, a mere picture of love and compassion by one person to another who's less fortunate. That's not what this is. This wasn't just David feeling sorry for this man, Mephibosheth. Some of them might even go so far as to use it to teach their own version of the golden rule, which is what? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. <clears throat> but we'd be amiss if we stopped at that lesson today. That's why I read to you from 10. Because if you'll recall, turn back over there for just hold your place there in 2 Samuel. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now all, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, for illustrations, for teachings, for instructions to who? They're written for our admonishment, our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. So everything that's here is for our admonition and for our learning and for our instruction. All these Old Testament stories concerning national Israel, they teach all believers in every generation spiritual lessons concerning the true Israel of God, His church, His bride, made out of every kindred, nation, tongue, and people on the face of the earth. And I, I truly love this story about this man, Mephibosheth, because it, it's, it's hard to say that word. I hope I don't mess that up this morning. I truly love the story of this man, Mephibosheth, because it, it paints for us a beautiful picture of the sovereign grace and mercy of God toward unworthy sinners for Christ's sake alone. Listen to what Paul wrote to those at Ephesus. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another. Now, listen to this. Even as God 
for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. He didn't forgive me because I asked for him to forgive me. Huh? He forgave me for one reason alone, for Christ's sake. The the verse that has become more real to me with each passing day of my life is Acts chapter 13, verse 38, 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that by this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. What's preached to you this morning? The forgiveness of sin. And by him, by his power, through his Holy Spirit, through his divine enlightening, by him all believing, all who trust, all who rely, all believing are justified from all things. How many things? from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. This morning I want to try and what time that I've got left to show you several ways. I see in this story of David bringing Mephibosheth to himself a picture of God's sovereign grace. And the first thing that I bring to your attention, turn back over to our text, is who actually determined to and actively moved to show mercy to Jonathan's heir. Who did it? Look at verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Just out of the blue. Didn't somebody come to him and say, David, Saul, Saul's got an heir. Do you want to show kindness to him? David just said, are there any left? Anybody left of this lineage that I can show mercy to? Now this man, Mephibosheth, folks, he wasn't seeking reconciliation with King David. You got to keep that in mind. You know where he was at? He was actually in a place called Lodibar, hiding. Hit out. And you know what Lodibar means? I looked up Lodibar, Lodibar this morning. That's a hard word to say there. You know what Lodibar means? Not a pasture. Not a pasture. <laughs> and so he's down in this place called Lodibar, and he hopes, his mindset is, is that he's completely out from underneath the king's eye, and he will never come before the king's ear. David, never hear about me. He just he was trying to become like that dude that's been hit out for the last 20 years. That, what's that guy that everybody wants him, wants to get him the hand? Julian Assange. Yeah, he was, he was kind of on furlough, hit out, worried about whether he'd be captured. Now, according to what I've read in, in 2 Samuel, several years have passed since Saul's death when this occurs, when he makes this inquiry. And since David's actually ascended to the, to the throne as the sole king of Israel. Matter of fact, I know enough times pass that, that Mephibosheth, you think about it, he was just a child. He was just five years old when he was crippled at the time that his grandfather Saul and his father were, were, were killed. Listen to this. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame on his feet. He was five years old. 
when the tidings of, came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. So five years old. And his nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. I meant to look up and see what the name Mephibosheth meant, but it completely slipped my mind. Now, according to the chapter that we're in, when David inquired of him, look down at verse 12 here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He's now, you know, he was five when he was crippled when his grandfather and his daddy was killed. Now look how old he is. In verse 12, and Mephibosheth had a young son. Had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants under Mephibosheth. So now what is it? He's old enough to have a child. He's got a son himself. So even though Mephibosheth was content down in Lodibar, had no desire and no will to, to seek reconciliation with David, the king spoke, and whatever he said, it was going to be done. You think about it, a king has sovereign authority over all things. And in the words spoken by David, he wasn't seeking counsel. He wasn't seeking a conference with any of Jonathan's heirs. He spoke, and when he spoke, you know what? Those that were commanded, they did what he said. These words spoken by King David, they typify the true and living God. Our God, the God of the Scriptures, the true and living God, he's absolutely sovereign in all things. First of all, he's sovereign in creation. Listen to this. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens, and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, after the Lord humbled him, he said this, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he doeth according to his will among the inhabit armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? He's sovereign in his providential dealings with all men. Do we truly believe this? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You know, we sang that hymn as a call to worship, and I found it on uh, Amazon Music this week. I, I tell you, you ought, to, you ought to spend some time listening to the words to that song by William Cowper, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. <laughs> go, go listen. This afternoon, go, go on Google, go, on, go on, your, on your computer and type in a hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and find the song and read the words. Behind what we think is a, a dark providence, what's there? A smiling face. <laughs> it, it, every problem, every difficulty, every good, every evil that comes our way, where does it come from? It comes from the hand of a God who loves us and sent his son to die for us. 
But see, here's the thing. He's sovereign in creation. He's sovereign in providence. But most important of all, you know what? He's absolutely sovereign in this all-important matter of eternal salvation. For he saith to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I may show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he'll have compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And I misread, Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Tell what, Jonah got it right didn't he? I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord completely. Nothing outside of God himself moved him to be merciful and gracious to sinners. You need to remember that David, you know, he'd have been just in sending his men down there to Lodabar to kill that guy. Nobody would have questioned him. He would have been right, and he'd have been just, because the thing of it was, this guy had a legitimate claim to Saul's throne. And you go back and you read the history of Israel as a nation, and even among other nations, when one king dies, you know what they did with all the heirs? Where there would be no crop up of somebody raising up a little army in some foreign land and coming back and taking the kingdom from them. They killed them all. They eradicated their enemies. I mean, down to the furthest lineage part of it that they could go where they'd never have to deal with it. And he would have been just in doing it. And in the same manner, folks, God would have been just in damning the whole lump. But in sovereign grace, you know what? Before we'd done any good or any evil at the purpose of God according to election, it is written... Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, before they did any good or evil. Here's the second thing I'd bring to your attention is what David's actual intentions were toward this unworthy man. Look at verse 3. And the king said, Is there any, is there not yet any of the house of Saul for one reason? that I may show the kindness of God unto him. That word translated kindness means goodness, faithfulness. Or here's the best translation of it, loving kindness. And if you'll notice, David says that I might show the kindness, not his kindness, but whose kindness? The kindness of God unto him. King David, a man who had been shown mercy himself. I mean, I always think about him when Nathan came to him. Remember after he had taken Bathsheba or had put Uriah the Hittite to death and then taken his wife because she was pregnant to be his wife. And for all intents and purpose, I know I've told you this in the past, I didn't see David in the throes of pain and agony over the fact that he had another man's wife and had put somebody to death to protect him and cover his, his tracks, right? 
He seems to me, when Nathan came to him and told him that story, Kenny, he was clueless. He had somehow glossed over in his mind all of that that he had done. And remember, Nathan told him that story about the little ewe lamb. And David became enraged over it. And he said, the man that did this thing, he'll pay fourfold. And I can still hear Henry in my ear telling that story. Nathan pointed that old bony finger at him and said, David, you're the man. And immediately David knew what he's talking about. <laughs> he did. Because what did he say? Pray that this won't come to pass in my house. And thank God, Nathan told him, well, you're not going to die. The Lord, you know what the Lord, the Lord, Lord put away your sin. Where? In the promised Messiah. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Having been shown mercy and grace by God to himself, you know what he was? He was a man of mercy and grace and kindness and compassion. On the other hand, the house of Saul was David's enemy and deserved no mercy and it deserved no kindness. Nonetheless, King David found it in his heart to show mercy to this man and to his family. Now think about the spiritual lesson this teaches us. The true and living God is absolutely holy. He's righteous. He's just. And according to the scriptures, you know what he tells us? He will by no means clear the guilty. Yet at the same time, this same God who will by no means clear the guilty, what does he delight to do? He delights to show mercy. You think about it, Adam's race, typified in this man, Mephibosheth, is fallen, rebellious race, deserving no mercy. And God is no man's debtor. He's not indebted to any sinner, but according to his own sovereign will and pleasure, graciously determined to have mercy on some. He told Moses, he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. While the language of false religion is merit and reward and service, the language of redemption, you know what it is? It's mercy. It's mercy. You don't believe it, go read, read Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through verse 17. And I know one thing. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you go back and look what he said before that, before I was a blasphemer. I did much harm to the church of God. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am what? I'm the top dog. Chief. The language of redemption is the language of the Pharisee. God be propitious. God be merciful. God be my merciful seed for this sinner. Here's the third thing I'd have us to consider the condition of this one on whom David determined to show kindness. It tells us, you know what he was? He was lame on his feet. <laughs> lame on his feet. When you think about it, 
and you look at this story, Mephibosheth had absolutely nothing to do with what caused his crippled condition. When Jonathan's servant heard that Saul and Jonathan were dead, what did she do? She grabbed this young boy, and she fled in fear for not only his life, but for who else's life? For her life as well. And she dropped the boy. And when she dropped the boy, what happened to him? It crippled him. I don't... I don't know whether she dropped him off the roof or what. I, I mean, we've, we've, I've dropped my kids, you know, in a lifetime, and it didn't come out crippled. But somehow, whatever, she must have been moving fast. But it's ended up in this boy being crippled. And this being lame on his feet describes not only Mephibosheth, but you know what it describes? It describes every son and daughter of Adam by birth. That's the condition of all who find, all find themselves in because of the fall. We're sinners by birth, by nature, by practice, and even by choice. And every faculty that we have, our minds, our wills, our understanding, all of it, what is it? It's ruined by the fall. We're dead in trespasses and sin, not drowning in them. We're graveyard dead. That word dead, dead in trespasses, means necros, dead. Which brings us to the fourth thing. King David sent and he fetched him. Look at verse 5. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Makar, the son of Emil from Lodibar. King David didn't send him an invitation. Didn't say, would you please come up here to Jerusalem? What did he do? He sent man, and he fetched him. That word fetch means to seize or to take hold of or acquire. In other words, Mephibosheth, he had no choice in the matter. When they showed up, they didn't say, get your things together, you're coming with us. They went in there and just took him. You're coming. You're coming with us. The king wants you. If Whatever the king wants. That's what the king gets. Because the thing of it is, if they didn't bring him back, what would have happened to them? Here's the spiritual illustration. Our God is love, is he not? God is love. And being loved, he has to express his love. The triune God in sovereign grace and mercy determined to show mercy on some out of Adam's fallen race. And because of that great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead and sin, trespassed in sin, what did he do? He sent his only begotten son into this world as the savior of his people. And like David's servants who went down to Lodibar and fetched Jonathan's heir, our Lord Jesus Christ came where we were, was made sin on our behalf, and by his obedience unto death, he honored God's law, satisfied God's justice, and enable God to be just and justify all who believe. But here's the most important thing. Christ accomplished our redemption, but he sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, and what did he do? He fetched us. Thy people, David said, Psalm 110.3, thy people shall be willing, literally made willing, in the day of thy power. Here's the fifth thing. I want you to consider is that David instructed Mephibosheth 
don't be afraid. <laughs> Look at verse 7. And David said unto him, Fear not. Fear not. Can you imagine the fear that Mephibosheth felt? And was in his mind when he looked out and he saw David's men's coming. Vision what ran through his mind. And even more important than that, imagine the thought process that went on in his mind on that trip from Lodibar when he's with these guys who have fetched him as they go back to Jerusalem. But even more than that, envision the fear that he felt when they brought him into the king's chamber and placed him there, and he's waiting for David to walk into the room and come in, expecting that David's going to come in. What's David going to pronounce on him? Death, condemnation. But instead of words of justice and wrath and condemnation from this king that could have truly done it, this unworthy verse vessel, what did he hear? Words of mercy and kindness and graciousness. If we know anything about it, look at, look at verse 6. Now when, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Isn't that the same way every truly justified sinner feels? I always think about that verse. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You didn't do anything to deserve the grace and mercy of God, nor did I. If we know anything of the holiness of God, and we understand anything of our own unholiness and our sinful nature and our human reasoning, it causes us to be filled, what, with fear and dread of the true and living God in spite of what we know and feel and understand concerning ourselves. But keep this in mind. Paul wrote to those at Rome, you and I included, and he told us this, the children of God, those whom Christ came and lived and died, rose again for, he said to us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from what? The love of God which is only found one place, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We always should consider ourselves just like this man Mephibosheth considered himself. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? The Apostle Paul made the same statement. O oh, wretched man that I am. Isn't that a dead dog? Unworthy? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Here's the sixth thing. Why did David have mercy on him? Why? Verse 7. 
David said to him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan, thy father's sake. Not for Saul's sake. Now he tells him, I'm not even going to give you what's Jonathan's, but what else am I going to give you? I'm going to give you everything that was Saul's. Huh? Doesn't, doesn't Paul say this? All things are yours, right? Everything. In response to the obvious concern Mephibosheth had for his own life, as well as the life of his own family, David tells him, don't fear. But now you listen to me. If the one who has the authority and the power to bring unmitigated fear and destruction into one's life tells you fear not, there's no reason to fear. He says fear. He wasn't tricking him. He looked at him and told him straight up, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? He says, for I will surely show thee the kindness of God. For whose sake? For Jonathan, your father's sake. We don't have time to read it, but I, write down 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 11 through verse 17. I wish I had time to read it, but I'm looking to clock on the wall, and I don't want to go read it for yourself. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 11 through 17. Before this boy was ever born, David made a covenant with his father, Jonathan. That's the covenant that he made with him. He swore to him twice. I'll be merciful and gracious to your lineage, to your family. And I tell you what, when you think about how wonderfully this covenant, based on David's love for Jonathan, because it says that he he loved Jonathan like his own life. I mean, Jonathan, Jonathan saved David because he loved David. I mean, you think about that, going against your own daddy, against somebody who your daddy hates and seeking to destroy and helping spare his life. Why? He loved David. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father entered into everlasting covenant with who? With me or you? No, no. He entered into everlasting covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, giving him a people out of, every, out of Adam's fallen race and making Christ our surety and our redeemer. Now, the God of peace, Paul writes, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. All the mercy, all the grace, all the kindness that God shows toward his people, it's all for one reason only, the great love for his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it's for Christ's sake. Here's the last thing. David kept his promise. David kept his promise. He made the Mephibosheth. Look at verse 13. It says, So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem. Before he was hiding in Lodabar. Now he's dwelling in Jerusalem. Uh-huh. 
for he did eat continually at the king's table. He's eating at the king's table, but what is still he got a problem? Huh? He's still lame on his feet. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? <laughs> we carry this old man with us forever. Now we do. But here's the thing. David kept his promise that he made to this man, Mephibosheth. And here's what's so important. Mephibosheth's continuance in David's house, it wasn't conditioned on anything that he had done in the past or any obedience or future obedience that he showed after he got there. It all rested on what? The promise of the king. But David was a man. And being a man, you know what? The type could have broke down here. David could have changed his mind. You do realize, hey, we know he didn't. But being a man, he could have changed his mind. Different circumstances, different situations. Somebody came and told him something Mephibosheth said. You know, maybe, maybe he heard Mephibosheth told some of his friends that since he's in his house, he's got a way that he can get to me. And so he turned around and killed David, killed Mephibosheth. He could have done that. But thank God our God's not a man. Every promise to us is good all the days of our lives as well as throughout all eternity. Why? God's faithful to his promise. Listen to this, and we'll close with this. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie, hear that? God that cannot lie, promised. When did he promise? Before the world began but hath in these due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus my own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say this in closing this morning. Our eternal life rests wholly on Christ's accomplished work of redemption as our surety and substitute. And God's well pleased with him, ever and always. And if we're his, we're found in him, you know what? God is well pleased with us too. You think about what that said, what the scripture tells us about our present abiding, because I know I am a sinner, right? And you do too. But we don't judge by sight. The just, the righteous live how? By faith. Because I tell you what, if you're fearful of your standing before God, you can't serve Him. You just can't. We have to have confidence, assurance. What's the assurance? In ourselves? In some great change in our lives? Should we change? You bet your bottom dollar. But we don't ever look to the change. What do we look to? His faithfulness. It is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Thank God for that. They're new every morning. I got up this morning 
same old man. Same sinful me. Great thy faithfulness. Not mine. He's faithful to his word. Let's stand together and we dismiss. I appreciate your presence. Lord bless you. Keep you till we see you next Lord's Day. But if you would, lead us in a closing prayer.